1: ta Coates is one of the most important voices in America today when he made the case for reparations to be paid to African Americans for hundreds of years of slavery. Those of us who read his article knew it would spark a long, neglected conversation. But we didn't know that its publication in The Atlantic last year would be a preamble to a long and scary season in which we've been talking about race and racism much too often. He spoke with us at Emmanuel Congregational Church in Hartford, where he was in town to receive the 2015 Stowe Prize for Writing to Advance Social Justice from the Harry Beecher Stowe Center. His book, Between the World and Me, was nominated for a 2015 National Book Award for nonfiction, and at the end of September, he won a MacArthur Genius Grant. This is ta Coates speaking on Where We Live. Why'd you start doing this work?
0: Baltimore's in the news right now, and... People ask me, um, what do I think is going to you know, come out of the events, out of Freddie Gray's death? What do I think is going to change? What's, what's going on? Uh, when I went to Baltimore a few weeks ago, people, what did I see? Did it feel different? And, and one of the sad facts that I tell people is that, no, it, it felt the same to me. You know, it, it generally you know, felt, felt the same. Um, and I expect that a year from now, it'll probably feel about the same, too. I say that because... Um, the, the Baltimore that people saw, I, I guess about a, a month ago, was, was a, a spectacle of, of, of a kind of particular violence. Um, there was a CVS that was you know, burning, and there were you know, people in the street you know, running all sorts of ways. There were you know, what you know, folks like to call a riot. And I'm only sort of mocking that a little bit because it pales next to what we would have called a riot in 1968. It's not even close uh, in terms of the level. That was the violence that attracted uh, uh, people's eyes. That was the violence which the, the mayor went on TV to, to denounce. That was the violence which the, which the president uh, denounced, uh, which, you know, community leaders denounced. But people uh, who have lived in Baltimore, uh, who have spent significant portions of their life in Baltimore, in the kind of communities where Freddie Gray was killed, and people who have spent time in those communities around the country, understand that life in those communities is inherently violent. Violence did not, you know, begin with the burning down of a CVS. Violence did not even in those communities did not even begin with the killing of Freddie Gray. And as a child, as, as a young person, you know, as a young African American person in a city like Baltimore, you take that message at, at a very, very early age. And so, as, as I've told people, you know, around the country, as I've talked about this issue, I can remember, for instance, being in middle school, and um, I, I can remember having to face a variety of choices before I went to school that had nothing to do with school, actually, or had everything to do with school. And so I had you know, to think about what I was going to wear to school. Um, I had to think about how I was going to cock my hat and what direction I was going to cock it in. I had to think about how I was going to wear my book bag. Was I going to wear it on, you know, with one strap over the shoulder or two straps over the shoulder? Was I going to wear you know, my, my Nike hat or not? Who was walking with me? How many of them was it going to be? What neighborhood were they from? And then when I got to school, I had to think about, when it was time to leave school, how was I going home? Was I going to you know, take the long route and catch the bus to my grandmother's house? Was I going to walk down Duke Dukeland and down the hill and over? Was I going to cut through the woods? Again, how many people were walking with me? Where were they from? Each of those choices, each of those decisions was about violence. Each of those choices and each of those decisions was about me finding some way to protect myself from the inherent violence of West Baltimore in that period. And I had, you know, friends and family, you know, uh, who lived in Chicago, who lived in Philadelphia, you know, who lived in other cities and other neighborhoods like West Baltimore, and I understood that they followed similar rules, that they had, you know, a similar brain process when it was time to go to school. I, I understood, although I might not have put it like this, then that you know, fully on, on, on a good day, probably about 30% of my brain during a school day was concerned with violence. And the rest of it was concerned with school. And then I would come home and I would cut on the TV and I you know, would watch whatever show I, I was watching. You know, uh, The Wonder Years, Family Ties, you know, Later the Cosby Show. But w- what I would see is that but what I would understand is that the, the, my way of life, my way of going through an average school day was, in fact, not the norm for most Americans. That there was a group of Americans who lived like me, and then there was a group of Americans who did not live like me. There was a group of Americans who, you know, for, for them, boyhood was just normal stuff. You know, you rode your bike over to your friend's house, and you didn't have to think about whether you were crossing North Avenue or not and who was over there. When I grew up, if you were you know, going into another neighborhood, your grandmother better live over there. You better have some cousins over there or something like that. What I understood was that my life was constricted by violence. And I knew that people who looked like me in America lived that way. And people who did not look like me lived in some sort of other way. And even at that age, at like 12 years old, you know, I was very, very interested in, in why that was the case. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, in many degrees, you know, the case for reparations is an attempt for me to answer that age-old question. So that's how I got started.
1: When you decided to make a case for reparations, there's a lot of ways that you can tell that story. Yes. A lot of other vehicles, but you you used a word, reparations, and used a vehicle that that really pushes on on some edges of what America wants to talk about. I mean, you know, right. a little bit further than what America wants to talk about. Why did you choose that? Why did you choose reparations as the vehicle for this conversation?
0: Well, first of all, it's correct. It became, you know, correct. I mean, it became clear to I me mean, and, I, and I, you know, as someone who, you know, came from a very skeptical, you know, position on reparations only like a few years ago, it became quite clear that it, that, it, that it was correct. You know, one of the hard things about, you know, Being African American in this country is that there's one level of things that you go through just, you know, that that are just, you know, racism, right? It's just, you know, negotiating the everyday, you know, racism of living in a country. But then on top of that, there's another conversation in which people try to convince you that the things you see as a result of racism are actually not there. So it's a kind of head trip that's put on black people. You know, and so, you know, we have all sorts of, you know, other discussions. Uh, to avoid a very, very uncomfortable reality. So you say, well, well, why is it that, you know, if you look at every socioeconomic statistic, African-Americans are down here, and white people in this country are up here, and they, you know, we'll talk about everything. Oh, it's, you know, it's class. Oh, it's culture. Oh, it's, you know, there's not, you know, enough fathers in the home. There's not this, there's not that. Everything except the most obvious thing in the world. And that is that any sort of honest reading of, of American history, any sort of you know, sincere reading of, of, of black people's uh, uh, passage you know, through this country's history, and African Americans are you know, you know, one of the oldest ethnic groups in this country, um, is a history of plunder, is a history of one group of people taking things from another group of people. And if you do that, if, if you have 250 you know, odd years of slavery in this country, you follow that up with another 100 years of, of, of Jim Crow. And when I, when I talk about Jim Crow, I just want to be clear, because when we talk about this, we think it means, like, you guys don't get to sit next to each other, like we don't get to have integrated pews like we have. Now, and, and, and that's a part of it, but understand that Jim Crow, at its core, is a system of plunder. Okay, your inability to vote is not, it's not just your inability to participate in some sort of, you know, symbolic ritual. It's an inability to make a decision about the tax dollars that you pay like every other American. It's an inability to have a, you know, a fair say you know, in where the resources in this country, which you are you know, a citizen of, are invested. And so it's continual plunder, which is not to talk you know, even about you know, the labor situation in a place like the South, for instance. If you have generation upon generation upon generation upon generation upon generation of plunder in this country, of extraction. From African-American communities and you take that wealth and you put it into other people's communities, the expectation that within 50 years of half-hearted efforts, the results of that extraction will disappear, you know, is, is fanatful. And so, like, the, the question about, you know the, you know, the Negro problem, as they used to say, <laughs> the race problem, the racial, however, you know, whatever euphemism you, you want to use, is it, not mysterious at all. You know, it's the record of American history, and, and it's not, you know, I, I feel like I'm saying something very radical, but in fact it's not radical, you know? It's just true, it's not radical at all. It's only radical because we've decided, you know, to, to, you know, to blind our eyes to certain things. It's always been in
1: some ways radical, but it's something that Americans used to at least talk about in the 1800s. And there, right. was, there was conversation about there was, it, yes. but that conversation has gone away. Why did the conversation dry up? over these, uh, really, 200
0: years? The problem with reparations is actually not the money. I don't, I don't, I don't think the money is actually the, the problem. I think the problem is that in paying the money, you have to cop to certain things, okay? And I, you know, I didn't really appreciate this, to be honest with you, until like the past, you know, f- five or six years. America thinks of itself, you know, with this whole concept of exceptionalism, that you know, we are somehow nobler than, than other countries. And that, that doesn't come out of, out, of, out of nothing. You know, America is, you know, uh, um, I think distinguished not among all nations, but among, you know, most nations, and being a creedal country, we were established based on certain values. And that's what makes you American. What makes you American is this belief that you have the right to pursue your happiness and do as you please as long as you, you know, obey the law. The problem with African Americans is that African American history runs counter to that entire idea. You know, and and it doesn't, you know, it's not a minor exception. (laughs) You know, it's not, you know, as as I tell people, you know, slavery is not like a bump on the road to something better. Slavery is the actual road. In in 1860, in this country, at the advent of the Civil War, African Americans were something like, I don't know, $3 in property in this country? If you wanted to, like, look at what the greatest export from this country was in 1860... 60% of all of our exports were cotton. that went through slave hands, okay? If you went to a state like Mississippi in 1860, the majority of the people living in Mississippi were enslaved. If you went to a state like Louisiana in 1860, half the people living there were enslaved. South Carolina, the majority of the people there living enslaved, one third of the entire population of the South enslaved. If you wanted to find where the richest, wealthiest population of Americans were in 1860, you went to the Mississippi River Valley where there were more millionaires per capita than anywhere else in the United States. Slavery is not a small thing. There is no America without slavery. And so (laughs) the problem with paying reparations is it forces you to admit that. It forces you to say, you know, this thing that we've been, you know, going to Iraq and telling people that we were, this thing that, this story we tell about World War II, you know, it's not quite true. It's not quite true. And so it puts us in a very, very uncomfortable, actually, I don't think hopeless place, but a very, very uncomfortable place.
1: You write about, um, about John Conyers, the Michigan Congressman, actually raising legislation that, of course, has never really been talked about in Congress. But what that would force Congress to do, to actually have a conversation in the Capitol about this issue and, and use the word reparations, whether or not it has to do with money or not, but to, but to raise some of these things, it seems of course like a pipe dream, but it also seems like the sort of conversation that probably needs to be had in that building specifically.
0: Yeah. I mean, and, and, and you know, people say, well, what do you think the first step is? And I actually do think that's the first step. I mean, the Capitol was built by slaves, you know? I mean, it, yeah, I mean, I can't think of anywhere else where it would be, you know, uh, more, more appropriate. And and it's quite sad because it's not like um, we have not, you know, paid reparations to people before. You know, I I was on the radio um, when this story first came out and I was talking to a gentleman and, um, you know, he called in and he said, well, I'm against reparations. I feel like, you know, the things you're talking about in your article were too far back. And I said, okay, do you think we should have paid reparations to Japanese Americans who were interred? He said, yeah, of course. Of course we should have. I said, listen, This article is based on housing. It's based on redlining that happened after Japanese Americans were interned. Can you at least agree on that? He couldn't, you know, you couldn't even, like, even the recent stuff is a problem, even if, you know, I've said, said this but, before. But, but a lot of yeah. the
1: argument is, I didn't do it. My family didn't do it. I don't know anybody who did it. I wasn't involved in red line housing in Chicago. I never yes, owned any did. slaves, so. Yes, you did. Yes, right?
0: <laughs> yes, you did. I mean, it's, just, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very, you know, for me, like, the most offensive portion is, it's a very opportunistic way of looking at citizenship. It's, you know, when my country does something I am proud of, then I'm an American. When my country does something I'm ashamed of, I didn't do it. So on July 4th, right? You know, you, you weren't there on July 4th. <laughs> you weren't around in 1776, right? But you all want to celebrate, and we all want to have hot dogs and hamburgers, right? We all want off for President's Day. Now we all want off for Martin Luther King Day. You didn't march on Washington. You know, why should you get off, right? We have some notion of the collective. I mean, this, this gets like really, really specific, you know? pay my taxes this year. Me and my wife got our taxes done on time. We're very proud of that, <laughs> very happy with that. My tax money will not go to things that directly benefit me. Now, I can't write to the IRS and say, you know what? I'm not going to use that bridge that you're building out in Wyoming somewhere. That highway that you're repairing has nothing to do with me. Why should I have to pay for that? That's not you know, how we construe the notion of citizenship itself. We are at this very moment, at this very moment, paying money out to the families of World War I veterans on pensions. Well, I wasn't alive for that. I didn't have anything to do. Why should my money have to go to that? And so it's clear that, you know, if we decided that as Americans, we would only pay for the things that we were directly, immediately responsible for. First of all, we would immediately cease to be Americans because we wouldn't have an America. You can't really have a state, the very definition of a state in which a person is only responsible for what they individually themselves do, you know, at a particular moment.
1: You're listening to Conversation with Ta-Nehisi Coates. He was in Hartford this summer to receive this year's Stowe Prize for his work advancing the conversation about racism in America. Recently, he won a MacArthur Genius Grant. We'll be back after this break where we live. This is where we live. I'm John Dankowski. This hour, we're listening back to a discussion taped in June with ta Coates at Emanuel Congregational Church. He was in Hartford to receive the 2015 Stowe Prize for Writing to Advance Social Justice from the Harriet Beecher Stowe Center. More recently, he was a recipient of a MacArthur Genius Grant. Let's get back to the conversation. One of the words you've used is plunder. Another word you use in this piece is disrespect. You talk about the essence of American racism is disrespect. And in the wake of the grim numbers, we see the grim inheritance. Uh, This year, in a piece that followed the Baltimore uh, riots, you write about disrespect for the hollow law and failed order that so regularly disrespects the community. What does disrespect mean to you?
0: The fact of the matter is the way, you know, white supremacy in this country has traditionally worked is it's often been the people who are the most successful, the most respectable, who are actually targeted. I mean, if you look at, like, the, you know, the, the lynching riots during the Red Summers, for instance, one good way to get yourself lynched if you were living in Mississippi, you know, if you were living in Tennessee where Ida B. Wells was, was to own some property and to insist on your own independence. The Ku Klux Klan didn't go around burning, you know, black brothels. You know, they burnt down black schools and black churches, basically places where black people, you know, acquire power. And so this notion that somehow, you know, our ability to make ourselves more respectable, somehow, you know, if we master, you know, the the, the correct form of English, that somehow this will be an effective force, that we can, you know, get folks to respect us. That'll make it go away. But see, the, the very essence of the history of how black people have been treated in this country is disrespect. It's a blatant disbelief in your own humanity. I don't know any other way to, to see that. If you, you know, took a moment and thought about Baltimore, Maryland, and thought about like, what actually happens in Baltimore, and thought about the, you know, the amount of violence in the average kid's life, you would feel ashamed of yourself for jumping up and down and, holl- and hollering because they burnt down a CVS. You know, it might be apparent to you that you know, if you were in the kind of neighborhood that Freddie Gray grew up in, where you could be arrested effectively for looking at a police officer wrong and running. That's not happening on the Upper East Side of Manhattan.
1: President Obama was one of those who was, in his way, his, his kind of quiet way, jumping up and down about those who were torching that CVS. Right. What's your reaction to his reaction to what happened? Well,
0: my reaction is that you shouldn't torch the CVS. You know, and I, I mean, I'm not here to endorse, you know, burning down buildings or arson. You know, um, so I, yeah, and he's president of the United States. You know, he's a head of state. So I I understand his his reaction. I think it's incumbent upon people like me who are writers, you know, who are not politically elected figures, to try to get the country to expand its imagination a little bit.
1: But but could he do a better job of helping to expand that imagination in the work that he does and with the office that he holds? Because, you know, one of the things that people say who will argue with you on Mm -hmm. talk shows is you know, look, we've got a black president of the United States. How much better could it possibly get? And we've heard this time and time and time again. Well, so he has this office. He has this platform. Could he do more?
0: I don't know that he could do better at expanding the imagination. I think he could do better at shrinking it, which is, I think, what he does a lot, unfortunately. Hmm. Uh, You know, I just, you know, went through this whole thing about respectability politics, and I I find his embrace of that deeply, deeply depressing. Um, I think it's sincerely held. I don't think it's an act. I think it's something he really believes. I think a lot of African Americans believe it also. But I think the record, the basic historical record of respectability politics in this country, it speaks for itself. It's very, very sad for me personally and thinking about like the many things I saw in Baltimore as a child. But I'll never forget walking home and six boys jumping off the bus, throwing me to the ground and stomping my head into the ground and people just walking past. This happened to everybody. And to know that there are like black boys and black girls right now who are growing up around that. And to see, you know, the president of the United States, who I know, you know, it's coming from the place of love. I don't think he's trying to hurt anybody. But to tell people that, you know, what's wrong with you is that you want to be like LeBron James. Half of America want to be like LeBron James. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people that give up their whole career to be like, for just a year being like, LeBron James, but to basically tell these people, you know, effectively in being like other Americans, like you don't really have that luxury. You don't really have the luxury of being like other kids. Now, there's an element of that, and I think this is what, what black folks would say, "This, hey man, that's actually true. That's what the fact of the reality is. But see, it's President Obama. It's President Obama. That's a, he's speaking for the entire American state. The head of the American state does not have a right to tell young black boys and young black girls who grow up under this violence. Your problem is that you basically need to grow up quicker
1: The housing that you that you write about in, in the piece when you write about Chicago uh, these neighborhoods that are not simply poor you write are ecologically distinct, not simply the same thing as low economic status um, in this pattern, Chicago is not alone and this is, this is something that you, you locate in Chicago, but clearly it is right here in Hartford, it is in Baltimore, yeah, no, it is every black single place.
0: It's, where, it's wherever you find communities of black people And And I think, like, um, there's a, a myth that um, liberals in this country and progressives tell themselves, and that is that the interest in the situation of African Americans in this country is roughly, you know, similar to that of poor whites. And so if we can just deal with economic issues, you know, if we can you know, deal with class as an issue, we will necessarily, inevitably, if indirectly, deal with racism, too. And in fact, it's just not true. It's just not true. Racism is, is, is a particular thing. You know, well, one way to think about this is, you know, there's a sociologist uh, down at uh, NYU, Pat Sharkey. And he did these neighborhood-level studies. And what he found was that the average African-American family that earns $100,000 a year lives in the kind of neighborhood that usually a white family making $30,000 a year lives in. When we talk about a black middle class, it's not actually the equivalent of 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 a white middle class. You know, we don't actually when we talk about white poor people in this country, you know, and black it, it just, it's just it's not the equivalent. There's no way that you're going to be able to avoid this discussion. It's like, you know, when you lump black people, you know, and I will go so far as to say, you know, uh, Latino people and pour white people into like one big, you know, clump and say, okay, here's a policy solution for everybody. everybody. No, it don't work like that. African-American history in this country is a particular thing. The history of white supremacy in this country directed towards African-Americans is a very, very particular thing. And unless there are particular solutions, I, I don't see us getting out of this.
1: Hi, what's your name?
0: My name is Deborah. Could you as a writer and especially a reporter talk about narrative, how narrative, particularly distorted narratives, uh, impact us as a nation, and also about how it impacts us on voting, uh, right. as participating as full citizens. Right, of course, of course. I think narratives are very, very important. Um, I was and am you know, just uh, someone who was hugely, you know, just greatly interested in the Civil War. Um, and I, if you want, I mean, this is probably one of the most harmful narratives that we've ever you know, taught us. It, it was possible. I mean, it is possible even now to have a conversation you know, with someone in certain sectors of this country, hopefully not here in Connecticut, but actually probably in Connecticut. In fact, probably in Connecticut. And you can get into a good debate over what the Civil War was actually about. Now, wars are often complicated, okay? You say, well, well, what was World War I actually about? Well, you can have a, you know, a, a pretty good debate about that. You know, the Civil War is perhaps the least complicated war in history in terms of trying to figure out what it was about. You, know, you read the Declaration of Secession for South Carolina. Slavery's right there. For Virginia, it's right there. It's all right there. The vice president of the Confederacy stands up and gives the famous Cornerstone speech and says, Since Thomas Jefferson was totally wrong about all men, you know, being created equal. In fact, our new, you know, republic, our new civilization stands on the great truth that the Negro is not the equal of a white man. That his servile position is natural for him. And this is a great moral truth. And yet, you know, for at least, you know, uh, for the past 150 years in this country, people act like it wasn't about slavery. But the fog is so thick and the narrative... We tell ourselves, is so strong. Well, it's only possible to do that if you have a narrative that says, no, 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 they were fighting about the, the, the way of life. What way of life? What specifically about that way of life? No, 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 it was about the taxes. It was about, you know, the, the, the tariffs. What? Tariffs on what? Taxes on what specifically? And so that that seems like a kind of, you know, just a a sort of historical oddity. But see, if you can tell yourself that story about your country, then you can avoid the entire conversation about what slavery actually was. Then you can avoid uncomfortable questions about what in God's name would cause 600,000 people to just start killing each other. Why would that happen? Then you don't have to have that conversation. Then you can talk about affirmative action as special rights. Because see, if you've annulled an entire portion of the history, that explains how we got here in the first place. You can talk about all these sort of measures as things that are favors to Black people, because the entire history that serves as, as you know justification for why we have to do this in the first place has been taken off the table. Then you can take away somebody's right to vote and say that well you're just not fit to be a citizen. It has nothing to do with say has nothing to do with us trying to you know represent any particular interest. When did we do that? When in our history have we ever done that? Because the Civil War wasn't about slavery. So, so much of, you know, the, the ability, I think, to, to, to take away African-American rights, the plunder, is always justified by a story. There's always a story. The dominant majority in this country has to tell itself and tell the rest of the country about how we got here to make it possible to strip people of things. But so if we have
1: this big national conversation about reparations that, that you started and that maybe we have on the floor of the, the Congress someday, that fog is still there, right? That 300-year that narrative is still there. Do you think that if we start to talk about it in the terms that you've laid out about reparations, that it changes anything about the way the people you just talked about are going to think about things, this is the way they've been thinking about it, for their entire lives and their families' entire lives? Yeah,
0: well, I, I suspect if this ever got to the, to the uh, floor of Congress, it would mean that the fog had significantly left it. I mean, you, you got to think about this like, like, a, like a writer, like somebody writing a novel. I mean, you have to think, OK, what would have to be the conditions in this country for you know, a measure for the study of reparations to actually get to the Congress? Well, first, got to get you know, a, a fair number of representatives in Congress to sign on to that. And what's behind that? Well, it's the people that elected them. So how could it be that you know, folks who are representing those people's interests would do that? Well, it must be that the people have come to see their interests a little differently. So that, that, that's a different world. So to put that in perspective, um, it's not that I expect, like, John Conyers' measure to pass and then America to change. I mean, the hope is that, well, the only way it could be is that America would change and then the measure would pass. That's the way, you know, it, it would have to work. And um, my idea to put this is just to put this out here like almost as, like a, um, as a signpost. This is where we need to get to. This is where we're trying to get to. And it may you know, take us you know, several generations to get there. But this is actually what we should be uh, uh, aiming for. And, and I have to say, you know, um, just to be very, very clear about this, I don't think changing that narrative threatens the country's existence as much as maybe most people think, think it does. The fact of the matter is, America is not distinct in telling itself a particular myth of its own history. You know, I, I'm, I'm learning French, and I'm becoming this Francophile, and I love France, and I love Paris. But, well, they have a story that they tell themselves, too. <laughs> they say, no, we don't have race, everybody's French. Yeah. Everybody says, no, 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 I mean, you know, it's quite obviously a myth. You know, and, I'm, and, 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 I, and I suspect that this is true of most countries. And national myth, you know, is, is, is not you know, necessarily borne out by, by the reality. The, the difference with America is, America goes around the world and tells people that it's exceptional. Well, you know, as I said, I propose to judge the country, my country, our country, by its own exceptional standard. So you don't get to plead the mediocrity of other nations. You know, if you want to be a leader, be a leader on this too. You know, have a, you know, a realistic, you know, a view of yourself. Just one last thing to add to that. I can, you know, my, my, my great friend Jelani Cobb is in the audience tonight, and one of the things we often talk about, we both went to Howard University, and the transformative experience of being in that history department, And it wasn't transformative um, because they told us how cool it was to be black. In fact, it was the opposite. I mean, they really confronted us, you know, with the deeply uncomfortable, you know, ideas about black identity. You know, for instance, when you had a conversation about slavery, you didn't get to go up there, you know, in front of, you know, a Howard University history professor and say, well, white people kidnapped, kidnapped us out of Africa. No, that's not what happened. People who look like you sold you. Now deal with that. Think about it. What does it actually mean? And it's a deeply painful and frustrating process to have to reconstruct your identity, but it feels so much better when it's done. That's ta
1: Coates speaking with us in June at Emmanuel Congregational Church in Hartford. He recently won a MacArthur Genius Grant and is author of the new book, Between the World and Me, which was nominated for a 2015 National Book Award for Nonfiction. We'll be back with more of our conversation after this short fundraising break you're listening to Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. This hour, we're talking to ta Coates. He's national correspondent at The Atlantic. He's the author of a new book called Between the World and Me. And most recently, he was a recipient of the MacArthur Genius Grant. He sat down with me in June at Emanuel Congregational Church before his new book came out, he was in Hartford to receive the 2015 Stowe Prize for Writing to Advance Social Justice. We're coming back with Coates answering a question about why race is such a factor in the American conversation at all.
0: First of all, I sympathize with your question quite a bit. Um, th- the one thing, and please don't take this as a, as a rebuke, in fact, I'm just, just trying to refine this. Um, <laughs> the one thing that's more pernicious and dangerous than this concept of race is racism itself. And I think, like, if you think about it that way, that's like one of the reasons why we continue to, to talk about race, the race problem in America. When will we ever get past these issues of race? Race is something that we need to deal with. There needs to be a conversation about race. We need more harmony between the races. And what that presents is a worldview in which you have actual different races that are, you know verifiable. And so there's a, a, a race that came out of Africa to this country. There was a race of Native Americans already living here. There's a race of, you know, untainted white people who are in this country. There's an Asian race here. And if we can get all of these fundamentally different people to get along with each other, then everything will be okay. But, you know, the reality of it is actually much more depressing. In fact, the very idea of these sort of divisions were invented. We created them. We created them. America was not the first time that people who we call white today and people who we call black today came in contact with each other. The stereotypes about black people being slow-witted, you know, more athletic, you know, less moral, all the other things that we associate, all the racist stereotypes we associate (laughs) with black people have a curious coincidence with the transatlantic slave trade. So it's not a mistake that these ideas you know, come out of nowhere. And, and what race effectively is, is a kind of justification for the commission of racist acts. That's the bottom line. And so um, how do I justify taking things from you? Well, I say you're part of a different race and you're inferior in, in this sort of way. And, and maybe today, you know, we don't fundamentally, directly you know, believe in taking things. I mean, we clearly are involved in a system that does that, though. But if we dropped the language of race, we would have to talk differently. We would have to say what happened in Baltimore, in this country, is not the result of the race problem in the America, it's the result of racism, which is a much more active way of talking about things. When we talk about our criminal justice system and observe the disproportionate number of African Americans that are involved in it, we would have to talk about racist policy. The ability to just, you know, say things, you know, it's a kind of, you know, it gives you a kind of passivity. It allows you to feel uninvolved. You know, and you can, you know, go with this myth that if folks just become a little bit more enlightened and a little bit more educated, everything will be okay. But the fact of the matter is racism is a done thing. And it's a thing we've done.
2: Thanks for your question. <laughs> go ahead. I'm Jamil Ragland. Um, a couple of weeks ago, or a few weeks ago, excuse me, the governor of Connecticut, a Democrat, Dan Malloy, He was promoting a bill that changed some of the ways that drug laws are enforced in Connecticut. And something that he said about the way that drug laws are enforced and the way that they target blacks and other brown people is that even if these laws initially, laws such as increased penalties in school zones, even if those laws weren't racist in intent, they are racist in outcome. And there was kind of like this explosion of anger that he even suggested such a thing. Like Republicans walked out of the legislature in a huff and he was accused of poisoning the well for this debate by even suggesting that people weren't actually racist but that laws has a racist outcome. It seems sometimes that when our leaders, political leaders say things about race or racism, the conversation is automatically shut down, that we seem to want to get to the solution part without having the actual conversation. So how can we encourage or force, as the case may be, political leaders and other leaders around the country to actually confront these issues of racism, to actually even begin the conversation? Because a lot of times it feels like the conversation is stopped as soon as someone brings it up.
0: Well, well, well two things. The first thing is that you know I would argue actually, a lot, when you talk about the criminal justice system in this country, actually a lot of these laws were racist in intent. And I think it's very, very, very important um, to acknowledge that. There's an idea that when we talk about the drug water, it was this second strategy that came up in 1970 under Nixon, or under, if you want to take it back a little further, under Goldwater, after Jim Crow fell. <clears throat> the fact of the matter, though, is in this country, the criminal justice system has been the dominant tool for stripping black people of rights in this country. The association between African-American civil rights and crime is, is not new. The drug war that, you know, we talk about now is actually the third drug war that we had just within the 20th century. They were always the same, you know, in in 1913 when people start, you know, outlawing uh, cocaine in this country. If you go back and look at what the congressional debate was, there was great fear over white supremacy. The idea, I mean, people, I'm, I'm not making it, people said this, that black men in the South were using cocaine and were turning superhuman. That they could repel bullets with their skin. That they were becoming super strong, that cocaine was improving their aim with guns. It's always been racist. It's, it didn't just become racist in 1970. You look at the record of you know the senators and the representatives that opposed uh, a civil rights legislation. They didn't start talking about this with Nixon. They were saying at the time that civil rights legislation would lead to more crime. They were saying it back then. And so I, I don't really know how one talks about you know if you want to have like any sort of national conversation about why our numbers look the way they do in terms of incarceration, for me, just defies any belief and any understanding of American history to say a world, and, you know, we're going out on a ledge here, but in America without white supremacy would tolerate having the highest incarceration rate in, in the world. It just it defies possibility. I can't imagine it.
1: Hi, sir. What's your name? Troy Brown
0: I'm from Hartford, Connecticut. I have a very simple question, at least I believe it's a simple question, and that is the case for reparations have been made for a long time by many other people. Can you tell me why now, in your article, it's actually getting the recognition that it's getting now? My sense is that people, that we are lying to ourselves about the effects and the legacy of racism in this country. And I think a lot more people know that than are saying it. Sometimes you know something and you walk around and it's heavy on your head, um, and then somebody just strips it bare and says, this is what it is.
1: I'll just ask you as we close, does this get better, obviously, palpably?
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I don't want to live under Jim Crow. Yeah, I, don't, I don't think that would be. I don't think nothing's changed. More depressing is why things change. And I think that things don't change in a way and for the reasons that, that give us comfort. One of the unfortunate things about American American history and the African American struggle in this country is every time there's been some sort of progress, some grand sort of progress for black people, it's always because white people had some ulterior interests. That's just always been true, you know? And so the Civil War happens, right? I mean, Abraham Lincoln, who, who I adore and who I love, you know, says it out loud. He says, listen, this, this is not, you know, about, this is about union. This is about union until it couldn't be about union anymore. But when it started off, it, it, was, it was about if I could preserve the Union by freeing no slaves, I would do it. I would do it. And yet it became clear that there could not be an actual union with slaves, that they had to make it a war, and so black people get an advance, right? When we think about the Civil Rights Movement, we think about nonviolent protesters, we think about Martin Luther King, we think about John Lewis, SNCC, NAACP. We think about these people with these great you know, shows of bravery, which did happen. It's, it's a real thing. I mean, just like the 54th was brave. I mean, it, it actually happened. And yet it's hard to ignore the fact that this happened within the shadow of the Cold War. Bull Connor was an embarrassment for American foreign policy. I mean, the Freedom Rides were an embarrassment for, for American foreign policy. And so there was an interest there. Would there have been as much progress without that? I, I, I don't know if you're an activist, if you're any sort of citizen that, that, that you know, has some sort of concern about things getting better, I actually think you have to have some humility about your own powers and your own abilities. I think like, that, that's ultimately how you, you can't just, you know, you pin your entire life and your entire happiness on events that are ultimately really out of your control. You know, and as an African-American, where you occupy 13% of the population, you just can't do it. You just can't do it. You go out there, you struggle, and you fight as hard as you can. You hope you win. You understand that most people doing the right thing actually do not and you make your peace with that and i think that's about all you know that we're entitled to i'm sorry
1: that's ta coates from our conversation in june at emmanuel congregational church where he was in hartford to receive the 2015 stowe prize for writing to advance social justice at the end of september he was awarded a macarthur genius grant special thanks to shannon burke mary ellen white Catherine kane and the entire staff of the harry peacher stowe center Today's program was produced by Lydia Brown and Betsy Kaplan, with help from Tucker Ives and Gene Amatruda. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf, our digital editor is Heather Brandon, and our executive producer is Katie Tolarski. I'm John Dankowski. Thanks for joining us on Where We Live.